When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium. Episode 263, Questions 10. Listener V asks, what was Alexios Angelos thinking in offering such impossible rewards to the Crusaders? Did he overestimate the empire's wealth, or did he think he could wriggle out of such promises once he became emperor? I don't think it was the latter. He was very friendly with Boniface and his troops, and he never really tried to get out of his obligations so I think he always intended to pay his debts. He was a teenager when he escaped Constantinople and had grown up under house arrest, so it's entirely possible that he overestimated the wealth of the empire. He was certainly out of the loop on how badly things were going in his absence, but I think the most likely explanation is that it was Boniface of Montferrat who told him how much to ask for, making sure that it was enough to smooth over any doubts the rest of the Latins might have about agreeing to the diversion. Boniface seemed to think, from early on, that the Romans could pay off the Crusaders' debts. Constantinople's reputation for being rich was well known, and Boniface wanted to use that wealth to feed his ambitions. As we'll see when the narrative resumes, Boniface was keen to be emperor himself once Alexius was dead. When Alexius Angelos eventually stopped paying the Latins, you may remember that Enrico Dandolo asked for a meeting, at which the Doge supposedly yelled at the young emperor for breaking his word. Listener MS asks, what exactly did the Doge expect Alexius to do, given that the empire was clearly impoverished, large parts of the city were on fire, and any further confiscations of private property might prompt a rebellion against him? I think Nandolo, like a lot of the Crusaders, didn't believe that the Romans were really out of money. The Doge would have been receiving reports from the thousands of Venetians who lived in Constantinople, and I imagine many of them would have been telling him, you know, they've got loads of money, they've got stockpiles of cash and mansions full of goods. But if Alexius Angelos was a more experienced negotiator, then Dandolo might have been interested in other potential concessions. Perhaps the Romans could have gifted him more land in the provinces, or an expansion to the Venetian quarter, or the rights to exclude Genoa and Pisa from the empire's ports. 
Things like that might have been accepted, at least as down payments or deferrals of what was owed. But Dandolo had to make his money back to justify the huge expenses he'd gone to in outfitting the fleet, and that included paying his men for the time they were wasting on the banks of the Golden Horn. So the Doge needed Alexius to keep some form of remuneration flowing in order to get his men home fully paid. Uh, But as we know, Alexius had reached the limits of what he could reasonably do. Listener A.B. questions my suggestion that more aggressive guerrilla tactics might have dented the Latin war effort. He asks whether it might have pushed the Latins into attacking sooner than they did. In a way, it doesn't matter. The Latins were only at war with the Byzantines briefly, first when they initially landed, and then again right at the end of the story when Mordsuflos murdered Alexius Angelos. So it's only on those occasions where I'm suggesting the guerrilla attacks could have been more effective. On both occasions, it wouldn't have mattered if it provoked the Latins to attack more quickly. The goal was to hamper their preparations. If they rushed into it, then it wouldn't benefit them. But each opportunity was squandered. It seemed like Alexius Angelos Komnenos and then Mordsuflos lost heart after their initial attacks failed, and I think a more desperate urgency might have caused the Latins logistical problems. We know men were deserting their cause all the time. If this could have been pushed towards a tipping point, maybe the attacks might have failed. Listener AB also asks whether anything else could have been done to prevent the siege from succeeding. Could the Byzantine elites have been better united? Could the Latins have been bribed or co-opted, or diverted, or delayed? Could someone else have come to the rescue? It's really hard to know exactly what was going on inside Constantinople. In theory, there would have been thousands of young men ready to fight for their city. Coniates does mention them on several occasions, where they took matters into their own hands, attacking the Latins with bow and arrow. I can only assume that they were not drafted into the army initially for fear of the chaos it might cause. You don't want raw recruits disobeying orders, opening a gate when they shouldn't, or abandoning their posts. By the time of the final attack, many may have left the city because their homes had been destroyed. But still, it's frustrating that Coniates doesn't address the issue of why the presumably large population of Constantinople was not brought to bear on the invaders. Similarly, we don't know if the aristocratic elites could have done more. Some, like Mortsuflos, did attack the Latins, but were consistently defeated in combat, suggesting the Latin knights were superior warriors on an individual level. Which does bring us to the curious case of Alexius Angelos Komnenos, leading the army out to meet the Latins and then retreating before engaging with them. Was this his mistake, or did the elites let him down? We just don't know. The best we can tell from the sources is that the emperor felt he was about to be overthrown, and so he gave up. Would it have been better for him to lead a charge at the heart of the enemy and die trying to save the city? Or, had that failed, would it have led to capitulation? It's hard to say. 
listener KP asks, why was this? Why wasn't there more support for Alexius Angelos Komnenos when the Latins turned up? And I think the answer to that again goes to the sense that this was a Byzantine civil war rather than an invasion. Many amongst the elite felt they had something to gain from AAK being overthrown, and it was so much easier to gouge his eyes out than it was to fight a massive Latin army. Angelos Komnenos sensed this and responded accordingly. Listener KP is confused, though, as to why the government wasn't full of loyalists to Angelos Komnenos after years in power. But that's the problem with the Komnenian kinship group. If high office goes sort of automatically to those with blood connections to the ruling family, then your court is full of potential usurpers, including those who were higher in the pecking order when Isaac Angelos was in charge. And oh look, here comes his son promising to put you back on top. Could the Latins have been diverted, delayed or co-opted? This is where crusading vows become so important. The Latins were serious Christians. Their oaths meant a great deal to them. So once they'd sworn to support Alexius Angelos, it was hard to back down from that. Would Boniface have called off the crusade if he'd been offered the chance to become emperor, as listener A.B. suggested? Maybe. But almost certainly he would have melted down statues and stripped churches anyway to pay his followers. So the city might have been sacked from within, even if the killing and enslaving had been avoided. I think if the Latins had run out of food, then they would have had to grudgingly accept some kind of deal, which is why I uh, am keen on more guerrilla attacks. Um, Could someone have come to the rescue? Uh, As we'll talk about in a future episode, there was no other Byzantine army to call on. The army was in Constantinople. The garrisons scattered around the provinces were not made up of high-quality troops. What about a foreign force? Could the Bulgarians have been persuaded to attack the Latins as they had the Arabs in 717? Unlikely. In fact, the Tsar had already offered to help Barbarossa take the city during the Third Crusade, and most likely would have done the same on this occasion. Um, Obviously, the context is very different. In 717, the Bulgarians, uh, well, the Bulgars as they were, had a sense that The Romans were more likely to be favourable to them than um, a new expanded Muslim caliphate, whereas here the Bulgarians had only just sort of reformed as a state, so helping the Romans was no good. A Latin occupation suited them very nicely. Um, It's just possible that the Romans did ask the Sultan of Iconium to send help, um, which we'll talk about in a future episode, but I doubt uh, it would have made... Uh, a difference, uh, as we'll discuss then. In general, do I think the course of events could have been changed once the Latins, you know, had landed? I think only by committing more desperately to one bad choice or the other. Either you convince people to die for the cause and seriously attack the Latins, or you strip more churches and more homes of their wealth. I think if the Latins were not on crusade if they were just a mercenary army, then all sorts of things you might have, uh, you know, you could have offered them would come into play. Um, But I don't think they were going to stop until they got every penny they were owed or they were too weak to carry on. 
So under those circumstances, I think you either pay them or you kill them. During the final attack, you may remember that the wind picked up, pushing the Venetian ships onto the seawalls, enabling them to lock onto a few towers and ultimately land troops on them. Listener MN queried this. I'm puzzled because sails in this period were used for long-range movement, whereas battle was an oar-rowing affair. Bringing the coupled pair of ships onto the two sides of a tower is something asking for the manoeuvring of oars rather than sails. The wind change described as a pivotal moment allowing the breakthrough seems rather like a narrative device, the narrator calling on divine intervention to justify their victory. Which I think is a great observation, and the traditional calmness of the Golden Horn would seem to support your argument. So I went through the four primary accounts of the breakthrough. Coniates doesn't mention wind or oars, but to your point, he does say the battle raged evenly until it was necessary for the queen of cities to put on the slave's yoke. God allowed our jaws to be constrained with bit and curb. So he's sort of buying into the deus ex machina moment of the breakthrough. The other three accounts are all Latin. Two mention the wind specifically. One is a description accompanying the transfer of relics back west, so might be expected to claim divine favour. The other is by Vilhardouin, the Marshal of Champagne, one of the leaders of the crusade. He gives good details, but again, to your point, specifically claims God produced the wind which drove them onto the towers. The account that I'm told is most trustworthy comes from Robert of Clary, a knight who wrote an account that's quite critical of the leaders of the crusade. He doesn't mention the wind, but he does describe in detail the swells of the sea making the crossing difficult, and the need to lash the ships to the towers once contact was made, or else the ships would be pushed away from the walls. So I think you're probably right that oars were involved as much as sails, but it doesn't sound like the horn was calm that day, and that the wind which was blowing may have aided the momentum of the attack. Once the city had fallen, you may recall that the Latins ransacked the tombs of the emperors. Coniates reported that Justinian's body had not decayed much, despite the many centuries since his death. Thank you to several listeners who managed to cover for my ignorance of orthodox tradition. Coniates was referring to the incorruptibility of the bodies of saints, the idea that their holiness will delay the normal process of decomposition. Uh, this was a poignant moment in his narrative, given that the Hagia Sophia, which Justinian built, was being ransacked at that moment. Justinian was no saint, though, as far as I'm concerned. Listener JW asks what happened to the actual bodies of the emperors. I haven't been able to find anything concrete about that yet. It may be that we just don't know. In theory, the Crusaders had no reason to touch the skeletons themselves. Several emperors were recognised as saints in the West, though that may not have been taken into account. It's possible the tombs were closed back up. It's possible bones were scattered. The only story we have is about Basil II, who was buried just outside the city in a church dedicated to St. John. In 1260, Nicene forces were besieging 
Constantinople, and they came upon this church. Inside, they found a corpse propped up in Basil's tomb, with a shepherd's flute placed in its mouth in mocking fashion. We'll have to revisit this story when we get there, as it's not clear to me if that is evidence of Latin mistreatment of an emperor, or if it's Byzantine propaganda. The imperial mausolea and the Church of the Holy Apostles which they adjoined were demolished shortly after the Ottoman conquest, though as far as I know there's no implication that this was done in a vindictive fashion. So it's possible that at some point the bones of the emperors were buried somewhere in Constantinople by the Byzantines, but that is pure speculation. Listener N asks, is there any historical or archaeological corroboration of Coniates' claims of the scale of the lost statues? Um, which uh, could mean <laughs> the number of lost statues or the size, the giant size of some of those statues. But the answer to both uh, questions would be yes, there is. We have several texts dedicated just to describing statues in Constantinople, we have lots of references to them in the historical narratives as people pass by them or crowds knock them over. And we have lots of marble and masonry columns and obelisks which survived that confirm the monumental scale of public display in Constantinople. I also mentioned the Colossus of Barletta a couple of episodes ago, which shows you the size of a huge statue of an emperor. And I should mention that one emperor's statue did survive the sack. It was Justinian's, of course. It's always him hanging around to claim the credit. Justinian was the last emperor to erect a giant column with a statue of himself on top. For whatever reason, a column was chosen with no internal staircase, as most of the other columns had. This meant that the Crusaders couldn't easily reach the giant equestrian statue, which looked down on them from the Augusteon. So rather than erect a huge scaffold, they left him up there. The figure of Justinian therefore became even more important after 1204, as the last surviving monumental sculpture in the city. He was eventually brought down in the 16th century by the Ottomans, when they did, interested observers sketched it, and so we know quite a bit about it and its huge size. It wasn't actually a statue of Justinian, by the way. He repurposed a statue of Arcadius, the son of Theodosius I. The ability to create these giant likenesses of men and beasts had been lost by Justinian's day. Which several listeners asked about. The answer to that will come when I finally get round to producing a long Byzantine story on Roman engineering and science, though we may have to wait quite a while for that one. Listener SW asks about statues as well, wanting to know about the myth that the statues in the Hippodrome were once alive and had been frozen by Byzantine magic. I can't tell you exactly where that idea originated, but I know it was being told to tourists in the 10th century, um, and maybe even earlier. Um, there's, a, there's a fascinating text from the 9th century that I have mentioned in passing before, where someone has written down a sort of guidebook to the statues of Constantinople, and they have absolutely no idea what any of the statues are. They misattribute almost all of them, and many have very elaborate superstitions attached to them, 
You know, one will blow up the skirt of impure women as they pass by, and another will fall on unsuspecting victims, and, and so on. Um, these stories are really fascinating. I talked about many of them in episode 168 and episode 168A of the podcast. Uh, Byzantine tour guides would update these myths in real time. So the Latins now occupying the city would ask the locals about the figures who were carved onto the column of Theodosius. And he had a a spiral relief column, uh, like the ones that Trajan and Marcus Aurelius had built in Rome. And, uh, of course, it showed Theodosius triumphing over the Goths back in the 4th century. But that context was long lost to those who lived nearby. And so they told the Latins that the column predicted the future and that people had been looking at it for a long time, trying to work out what um, it portended. And, of course, now it seemed clear that the the men uh, fighting on the column were the Romans and the Latins and that it was the Latins' victory being portrayed long, you know, centuries before on this giant column. And, uh, of course, the Latins liked the sound of that. And uh, that is how you earn a tip uh, if you are giving people a guided tour. Listener N asked whether there was a sudden influx of precious metal from the capture of all the loot in Constantinople. Um, no, I don't think so. There weren't that many giant statues to melt down. All that cash went straight to the, the soldiers. You know, it went to paying the expenses of the crusade and of the salaries of those who had to stay behind and work for the new Latin Empire. Um, in fact, the capture of Constantinople depressed the gold supply for some time, since the Romans were no longer minting gold coins. Sadly, this is the end of Byzantine coinage acting as a major instrument of exchange in the Mediterranean world. They will go on minting lesser value coins, but by the time the Romans are fully in charge of uh, Constantinople and their own economy again, in about a century's time, Italian coins will have become the new gold standard. Listener LW asks what happens to the foreign wives of the emperors when the Vasilevs dies. Uh, I was thinking of Agnes of France, but in general, are they allowed to return home if they've had no children? Which is a great question, um, because obviously uh, women are often left out of the narrative. We don't often hear what happens to people, but uh, royal brides often do get a mention. Occasionally, um, Occasionally we hear of people who returned home. We'll, we'll come across Byzantine brides who returned home eventually in our narrative. Um, but it's rare, and in general, as you suggested, they stay around to support their children. If they were deemed politically inconvenient, then they would be encouraged into a convent. If they were politically useful, then they would be married off to someone else. As will be the case with Margaret of Hungary when our story resumes. Uh, that is Isaac Angelos's wife. Thankfully, I can actually tell you about Agnes. Agnes was the daughter of Louis VII, the French king who bravely fought his way across Anatolia during the Second Crusade. She was sent to marry Manuel's son, but was then betrothed to Andronicus in a hideous age-gap marriage. She was only 12 at the time, and he was dead three years later, which must have been a relief. She then remained in Constantinople and became a lady of the court. 
she ended up in a relationship and eventually married Theodore Vranas, the son of Alexius Vranas, the rebel who Isaac Angelos had to twice put down. When the Latins were camped outside Constantinople as allies of Alexius Angelos, they arranged a meeting with Agnes. They were surprised to find that she no longer understood French and was unfriendly to them. She told them she had no interest in returning to France and did not approve of them interfering in Byzantine politics. It was quite an interesting rebuke to Latin assumptions. Speaking of which... One of the most fascinating moments in the Fourth Crusade story comes when a group of Latins are introduced to the King of Nubia. Alexius Angelos makes introductions, and through an interpreter, they hear a story that astonishes them. This man came from somewhere in southern Egypt or modern Sudan, and his black skin was obviously novel and interesting enough to the Latins on its own, but he had a cross imprinted on his forehead. He claimed that children in his kingdom had the symbol burnt into their heads when they were young. And he had travelled hundreds of miles to visit Jerusalem and then come on to Constantinople. And he planned to go on to Rome and then to St. James of Compostela in Spain and then to return to Jerusalem where he planned to end his days. He had suffered great hardships along the way and was grateful to the emperor for giving him fine lodgings. You know, this left the Latins speechless. Their own crusade was currently stalled while they were waiting to be paid, whereas this man had lost many travelling companions along his journey but continued undaunted. And now he enjoyed hospitality from the Byzantines that had been given freely. The knights were also put in the shade when they looked at the cross burnt into this man's head. Their crosses were only temporarily sewn onto their clothing. And finally, this man was attempting a far greater and more arduous journey, aiming to end his days in the homeland of Christ, whereas some of these Latin barons were eager to fulfil their obligations and get back home. If the story was told by Coniates, you might suspect it was made up to embarrass the Latins, but it comes from Robert of Clary. Listener CF asks if any of the religious artefacts that the Crusaders looted were considered illegitimate because they were made by the Orthodox. That didn't come up in my reading, and I don't think... Um, that would be the case. The items they prioritised usually predated the conflicts between the two churches, you know, biblical figures or early saints. And there were many saints um, who were venerated in Byzantium uh, who the Westerners hadn't heard of or didn't know very well. And so, um, you know, they, they those relics were left or were not sent, you know, home um, as prized possessions. So I think rather than illegitimate, they just would have seen them as irrelevant. Um, you know, the bones of a, a saint who lived in Anatolia in the 8th or 9th century, just that would have been no interest to them. Listener AS asks whether the Latin accounts attempt to cover up or diminish the reality of what the Fourth Crusade did, um, to which I would say yes and no. There's a huge amount of spin going on in the Latin histories, as we would expect, but they aren't trying to downplay what they'd done. On the contrary, they talk up how impressive it was that they had captured this incredibly large and rich city, 
um, you know, the more amazing their achievement, the more obvious it was that God had had a hand in it. Um, but each of these accounts, you know, really falls over itself, you know, trying to justify what they'd done, and very few of them dwell on the killing and enslavement. Listener V asks whether Enrico Dandolo really was in his 90s and whether this seemed odd to contemporaries. Um, Dandolo is well attested in the Venetian sources. I can't guarantee he was exactly how old he said he was, but he'd been around a long time, and his age is noted uh, you know, by other people writing about him, but he's treated with great respect by the other Latins, so it was certainly unusual for someone of that age to be so sharp and willing to join a military campaign. Finally, listener SK asks whether the flying bridges used by the Venetians were designed specifically for the attack on Constantinople or whether they'd been used before. I'm afraid I don't know Venetian history well enough to be sure, um, but the idea that ships could be used to attack city walls was definitely not new. You know, Belisarius shot down on the defenders of Palermo from his ships and then sent men to capture the walls. Um, so I'm sure it's not a new idea, but it, it, I don't think it would be a practical thing for a fleet to sort of um, maintain regularly. Um, and that's usually what happens with siege equipment, that it's all built on the spot. So I imagine um, the idea was drawn up and executed at the time. It wasn't something that the Venetians regularly used because they weren't regularly besieging um, seawalls. Um, but anyway, that's it for today. Next time more questions. Uh, <laughs> the Fourth Crusade and the sort of surrounding era have generated a lot of questions. And uh, just to clarify uh, what I said last time, I said uh, that the Patreon Zoom, where you can ask me questions in person, will happen in about a month's time. I know some of you thought I meant the next episode would be in a month's time, but uh, here we are a week later, so uh, your fears uh, <laughs> can be put to rest. And, oh... I have a treat for all of you. If uh, if the uh, if the Fourth Crusade seems like a sort of uh, difficult, healthy main course, then I have some serious dessert coming up in the form of a podcast where I ask uh, Professor Anthony Caldellis to give us his ten best emperors. I cannot tell you how excited I was that he agreed to do that. <laughs> And we had a two-hour conversation. I absolutely loved it. I am absolutely confident that you will love it. Um, it is, you know, as entertaining as it is interesting. And, uh, oh, God. Anyway, can't wait to get to that. But next time, more Fourth Crusade questions, more answers, and uh, hopefully more fun. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 